Again, Luke chapter 2, beginning at verse 25. Now, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, This child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. This is the word of our Lord. Well, we need to know before looking at this scene why it is that Joseph and Mary are even in Jerusalem. We're told in advance of this passage that they are in Jerusalem for two purposes, though if I phrase the purposes in this way, you may not believe me. The purposes of uh, these parents coming to Jerusalem is to receive atonement and to illustrate redemption. To receive atonement and illustrate redemption. That is why they are coming to Jerusalem and why They are in Jerusalem, but let me explain why that is. First, how is it possible that they could be there to receive atonement? And Moses said that after the birth of a son, a woman would be ceremonially unclean for seven days. Uh, Her baby boy would be circumcised on the eighth day, and for another 33 days, the mom would remain unclean. And because she is unclean during that period, she should not come into the presence of the temple or of anything that is holy. And in fact, she even makes her husband ceremonially unclean during this period as well. And then after 33 days, she will be purified, but she and her husband need to come to the temple, says Moses in Leviticus 12. Why? To be atoned for. The priest will receive an offering, two doves if the mom and dad are poor, and then the priest will impute the ceremonial uncleanness of the parents to the doves and then kill them as a sacrifice. And then mom and dad, having their uncleanness atoned for, become clean before God. And so Joseph and Mary are going to Jerusalem to receive atonement by the words of Leviticus 12. But they're also going to Jerusalem to illustrate redemption. This is not from Leviticus 12, but it is also from Moses. Moses has said in Exodus 13 that the firstborn of every male, human and animals, are to be consecrated to the Lord. Not dedicated, not sacrificed, to be sure. They're to be understood, as it were, as a sacred picture these firstborn are. They're an object lesson. 
they're an illustration. In Egypt, the firstborn male was plagued to die unless that firstborn male was redeemed by God. But God redeemed the firstborn of the Hebrew people. How? We know. By providing a sacrifice. The blood of the lamb redeemed the firstborn of the Hebrew people. So Joseph and Mary are going to Jerusalem, according to Numbers 13, to illustrate this with their own firstborn. In Jerusalem, they would go and they would pay the five-shekel redemption price and they would display the redemption of the firstborn. So both of these things are on the minds of these parents to receive atonement, to illustrate redemption. Now, Simeon is actually going to teach us these two things. These pictures of uh, redemption and atonement are actually very important for us to understand what it is that Simeon is doing. And he's teaching this with his life and with his words, that Jesus himself is the redeeming and atoning grace of God. Jesus himself, this baby, this child who has, has entered Jerusalem under the power of his parents, this child is himself the redeeming and atoning grace of God. But Simeon also reveals something about the reception that this baby will receive as he grows. Simeon is going to indeed say that Jesus is the redeeming and atoning grace of God, but he's not always going to be received that way. He's not always going to be received as Simeon receives him on this day in Jerusalem. Jesus will be the kind of man Simeon will teach who divides people into two camps. Some will receive him in faith. And some will reject him. Some will rise and some will fall. And so we put these two things together that uh, Simeon is teaching that Jesus is himself the redeeming and atoning grace of God. We also can't forget that that Simeon is also teaching that this Jesus who is himself the redeeming and atoning grace of God, well, he'll not always be received as the redeeming and atoning grace of God. He'll, in fact, as he grows up, be received with mixed results. And I want to show us this from this passage in uh, just three uh, quick points, looking at Simeon, beginning with Simeon's life, but then moving to Simeon's public profession as he holds this baby. And then the passage closes with a private warning. Simeon's life, Simeon's public proclamation, Simeon's private warning to Mary and to Joseph. First of all, verses 25 through 27, Simeon's life. You know, Simeon, he's a man who knows how to live life. And, 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 and I don't think that you should hear that as me being trite. He's a man who knows how to live life. He was one of those rare people who knew how to be godly even in despondent times. Things in Israel were bad. At the time of the birth of Jesus, one commentator says that there was uh, the uh, Israel's uh, loss of political independence, the, the cruel hatred of King Herod for his own people, the externalization of religion that is religion only in formalism, the legalistic teaching of the scribes and the Pharisees and their many followers, and then the worldly-minded teaching of the Sadducees and their many, many followers, and then the very silence of the voice of prophecy. And we could go on and on and on to describe the despondency of the time. And yet here, Simeon, he's just a man who knows how to live life, even in despondent times. Now Luke writes in verse 25, 
there was a man in Jerusalem. It's almost as if in all of Jerusalem, there was this one man, and he stands out from the crowd. Why? Well, Luke tells us that he was a man who is righteous and devout. Both of those qualities in one man. There was this man in Jerusalem. And in these hard times, even, he is a man who's righteous and devout. Some scholars have suggested that the phrasing that, you, that Luke uses here to describe Simeon, righteous and devout, is the kind of phrasing that ought to make us think about the summary of the Ten Commandments, that this description, righteous, refers to Simeon's regard for others, for uh, his brothers and sisters, for his neighbors, while the description devout, that that refers to Simeon's regard for God, that he worships God. We actually have a similar description for uh, Anna later in this section. Uh, Simeon is a a man who loves God. He's a man who loves uh, his neighbor. Uh, This great summary of the Ten Commandments courses through his veins, even in, especially in despondent times. We need to see how unusual this was for the era. I mean, just think about this, the ministry of uh, John the Baptist. Uh, John the Baptist is going to begin his ministry, and we'll hear him address the crowds, you brood of vipers. That's the crowd, you brood of vipers, bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. And John the Baptist knew his context. It's hard. But there was a man in Jerusalem. Not only was Simeon righteous and devout, he's likely been this way for a very long time. He was likely very old. Now, we have to admit in our passage that there's no explicit evidence as to the age of Simeon. But verse 26 says he, uh, the promise was that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And uh, it seems as though that that phrasing is evocative of a man who is uh, advanced in years. We're certainly told that Anna in verse 36 is a woman advanced in years. Uh, but we also have a hint of the age of Simeon in verse 29 when he says, now you are letting your servant depart in peace. He seems to be a man who's on death's doorstep, and he seems to be uh, a man who has therefore been righteous and devout for a very long time. In many ways, this man in Jerusalem, Simeon himself, prefigures how we ought to live as Christians today. Paul says something uh, to Titus that sounds very similar to the life of of Simeon. In Titus chapter 2, Paul says that the grace of God has appeared, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Doing what? Waiting for our blessed hope. Well, that's the same word that's used to describe Simeon waiting. Paul says that we're to live godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is Titus two eleven through 13. You ought to contemplate that uh, when you think about the life of Simeon. Simeon, who is living a godly life in a despondent age, waiting to behold the face of the Lord's Christ. If you're here this morning as a Christian, that is you as well. And we know that waiting for our blessed hope, the same word uh, that describes Simeon's waiting, is not a waste of our time as Christians. Don't we know that? 
We know that Jesus will come again, and whether that happens before our earthly death or after, we will behold the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. The Bible says that our lives today are to be righteous and devout as we wait that day. Just as this was true during the despondent time of Simeon's day, it's true also in our present age. Now, There's yet another thing that we need to keep in mind. Simeon is actually uniquely aided by the Holy Spirit to do this. Verse 26, we're told that the Holy Spirit has interceded to cause the central event of our passage to take place. And Simeon knows that he will not die before he sees the Lord's Christ. And that phrase in verse 26, by the way, is rather unusual. The Lord's Christ. It's a very unique expression that occurs only here in the Bible. If Simeon believed with every ounce of his being that he would never go blind, that he would never die until this most sacred event that unfolds before us. We're not told how long Simeon knew this about his life. We're not told when in his life the Holy Spirit visited him with his revelation. But given what we're told by Luke about this man, it's uh, nearly impossible for us to not imagine that Simeon may have expected to see this baby decades before that baby was even born. The Holy Spirit can do this. We just don't know how long ago Simeon knew this. We get the impression he's lived a righteous and devout life for a very long time. Each day of his life, he understood to be in God's hands to display God's promise. Each day of his life was circumscribed by the plan of God. That the promise made by the Holy Spirit is that God would show him something, would show him someone, God's Christ, the Holy Spirit, God the Father, God the Anointed One, all are cooperating in the life of Simeon in such a way that every day he knows is a day that is bounded by the revelation of who Jesus is is we could learn a thing or two from Simeon the promise to Simeon is that he would see God's own Christ and he does in our passage in verse 28 through 33 uh, Simeon uh, transitions into a wonderful public proclamation of the gospel Uh, interestingly enough Simeon doesn't get to live a private life with a private expectation a a private conversation with the Holy Spirit and then a, a private realization of the promise made by the Holy Spirit you know we can Uh, see from our vantage point here in 2019 that the purpose of the Holy Spirit is to make Jesus known to the world. Simeon is uh, not simply following a private revelation with private expectation, but Simeon, he almost seems to know that this revelation has a strong, bright, public aspect. He makes a public proclamation. Now, verse 28, it should stand out to us as being odd. Let me tell you why verse 28 is odd. The problem with familiar passages is we read them so often, we hear them read so often that we miss the things that are truly unusual about them. And verse 28 is is one of those unusual pieces of this narrative. 
We're not told that Simeon has any religious importance, any official uh, ordination importance in the city of Jerusalem. Some have supposed that Simeon is himself a priest, but we're not told. I doubt that he is. He's an old man, and he's an old nobody. He's just there. And Joseph and Mary are nobodies. And they're bringing their child in their arms like other nobody parents, and the child is on the surface just a nobody. But as they come, it's appropriate that they're there. They're there to visit with the priest. But then one of those nobodies does something that's very unusual. He approaches Joseph and Mary, and he takes Jesus up in his arms. That's strange. And it's, it's strange by the words that he offers, but it's just strange that he would even do that. A strange old man. Look, dads, moms, think about it. You done thinking about it? Strange. And he comes up and he takes uh, this baby, their baby, uh, in his arms. Mom and dad, the attending priest... Everyone who sees this, they ought to be astounded. You know, I think in uh, verse 31, when Simeon refers to the presence of all peoples, I wonder if there's a crowd around them right now, a substantial crowd. He's referring to a body of people, and maybe the body of people is right there. We ought to consider that there's a crowd. That crowd, in addition to mom and dad, in addition to the attending priest, would find this behavior of Simeon striking. And as he does so, as he takes this baby, he blesses God uh, publicly for all to hear. And the words are so striking uh, that they uh, have to be heard by some of the the, uh, very uh, interesting mutterings of this uh, old man's audience. That uh, he is grabbing this baby and he is making sounds, he is speaking, and it's strange to all that he would do those two things. Why would he say something? But we have to acknowledge that this scene looks like a crazy old man grabbing a child and uttering something or other. And then he says, now you are letting your servant depart? It sounds like a death wish. He's publicly announcing with someone else's child his own death holding up this 40-day-old baby. The scene is almost mad. And let me just say one more thing. He doesn't hug the baby. Now, I suppose in the ancient Near East, we wouldn't expect him to hug. But we would today, we would expect that if he were to take an interest in this baby, to praise this baby or the mom and dad of this baby, that he would receive this baby. And it would almost be natural for him to cling to the baby, to hold the baby, to even weep, to not let the baby go, to appreciate the baby in that way. But instead, it seems to us that he grabs this baby as an object lesson. When we read the passage, we're not given precise details, but he seems to be holding the baby out in front of his face, takes the baby in his arms, but the baby is held before his face. And he says, my eyes have seen your salvation. Everything about Simeon's proclamation centers on this child's role in God's plan of salvation. God, this is your means of salvation. The baby is held like an object lesson. 
And then, in ecstatic reverie, the old man Simeon scours the vocabulary of Isaiah the prophet when he says that this means of God's salvation, this very baby that he is holding before his face, that this means of God's salvation is a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. The presence of Isaiah is felt through these expressions of the universal awareness of this baby as Simeon holds the baby before his own face. All of Israel and the entire Gentile world will know the light of God and the glory of God. How? Through this baby alone. It's a dramatic scene. and We're so familiar with it that we miss this. Remember how striking everything is about the scene. And now remember what Joseph and Mary are arriving in Jerusalem to do. Do you remember? To receive atonement for purification and to illustrate the redemption of the, of the firstborn. Here in flesh and blood is atonement. Here in flesh and blood is redemption. This baby This Yeshua, this Emmanuel, this Christ of the Lord, this salvation of God, this Jesus is the redeeming and atoning grace of God himself. And in verse 33, Luke tells us that father and mother marveled. No kidding. Father and mother marveled, as would many But look what Luke tells us in 33, that father and mother marveled at what was said about him. It was the proclamation of the word about Jesus that caused them to marvel. And we have that today in the life of the church. Oh, that this pulpit would be used to proclaim the redeeming power of Christ Jesus. Be used to proclaim the atonement that we have in Christ Jesus. They marveled at what was said. Joseph and Mary, they've attested thus far in the life of this baby to the words of angels, to the testimony of Elizabeth, to the actions of the shepherds. But here they understand acutely that all of God's saving plans are bound up in this child alone. Joseph and Mary and that baby walked to Jerusalem to receive atonement and to illustrate redemption. But their walk home will be much different. Well, this is Simeon's public proclamation that it's followed, according to Luke, in verses 34 and 35, by a private warning. There's a sense in which the tone of this passage is so It's so hard to peg. As a uh, preacher of the gospel, uh, I want to come to this pulpit with a tone of cheer and joy and delight in the things of the gospel. I want you, too, to believe in the gospel like I do. And the tone for that proclamation is a tone of great cheer and happiness. But verses 34 and 35... (laughs) Almost make that hard. 
Because in verse 34, Simeon, he turns to Mary specifically. In scholars, they, they wonder why this is. Why Mary specifically? We, we, don't, we don't know exactly why Joseph isn't directly addressed or doesn't seem to be directly addressed. He's present. Verse 33 tells us that he's present. And what they are doing in Jerusalem, Luke has already said, is something that's not just for Mary. It's actually for Mary and for Joseph. You can look at verse 22. There's a a reference to them being together. Uh, Why the focus on Mary? Well, if scholars are uncertain, I don't mind admitting to you that I'm also uncertain. But let me tell you what I think. The focus on Mary may be a reference to her impurity in particular as the source of their trip to Jerusalem. It could be that there was a focus on their visit, not of the the presenting of Jesus to illustrate redemption, but rather the seeking of atonement, that Mary might be made clean. Uh, That would seem to focus on her. So maybe that's why he's addressing Mary. But I think there is a slightly better reason, and I'll share that with you in a second. But what Simeon does is Simeon reveals three dark secrets about this, pa- this baby as he looks at Mary. And God has appointed this baby as the means of salvation, the Christ, the anointed one. But God has also appointed this baby to do three things in particular. God has appointed this baby to be the pivot point for the rising and falling of many. That's the first thing. God has appointed that this baby would be a fulcrum of sorts between eternal life and eternal damnation. Those things Simeon differentiates, rising and falling, and this baby is the pivot point for eternal rising and eternal uh, falling or judgment. The success and failure are not to be measured in relation to my colleagues and friends, not to be measured in relation to my bank account or to my resume, not to be measured by how exactly I feel about myself. Simeon says that success depends upon how we deal with Jesus. He's the focal point. God has appointed him to be that anointed one. The second thing is this, is that God has appointed uh, this baby to be a sign that is opposed, uh, a pointer to God. That's the, the, the clearest explicit image of a sign, that this baby is to point the people uh, to be God. And that sign is uh, then going to be rejected for other signs. The people, they'll look at this Jesus as a sign pointing to God, but they'll reject him. They'll oppose him. He will be the one way to God, but men and women will bow before many other ways to reach God, which are no ways to reach him at all. And then thirdly, uh, this Jesus, this baby, uh, he is appointed to be a revealer of hearts, a revealer of hearts. And here, Simeon is harsh. He uses strong language to talk about this uh, appointed purpose of this baby. He uses a word for a broad sword that would normally be used for slicing the enemy. Simeon says to Mary uh, that he is a revealer in such a way that the broad sword becomes not a slicing weapon, uh, but a jabbing weapon. That this Jesus, 
He is appointed to be a revealer of the heart in ways similar to a broadsword being used as a revealer of the physical heart. He will know men and women better than they know themselves, truer than they know themselves. Now, these uh, three appointments of Jesus for him to be the uh, pivot point for the rising and falling of many, that he will be a sign that is opposed and that he will be uh, a great uh, revealer of hearts even to the consternation of those hearts. Why does Simeon direct these words to Mary? When we talk about the gospel, we rightly understand the gospel is the good news But there is a hardness in the good news. There is a badness in the good news. There is something remarkably disagreeable about the good news. The good news is good news because it is God's plan for salvation, not my plan for salvation. The good news says things about me that are hard to hear, that I am a sinner, that I am hopeless in saving myself, that I need someone to do something for me that I cannot do. The gospel tells me that I'm no better than anyone else. The gospel says that I am conceived in sin. The gospel tells me that I am completely and utterly hopeless without that cross work of Jesus Christ. And the gospel tells me that if I do not bend the knee to this Jesus Christ, the cartilage of that knee will be melted before his final judgment because he will come again. Why does Simeon direct these words to Mary? The words are harsh. But keep this in mind that they are directed to, in the narrative, a person who seems to be one of the most faithful people we have seen in Luke's gospel thus far. It makes sense that these words would be applied to non-believers. Non-believers need to hear this about Jesus, these hard things about him. Eternal life pivots on him. They need to hear that all of those other signs are mirages, They're false. They need to hear that this uh, Jesus Christ cuts to the very soul, understands you. Non-believers need to hear that, don't they? We'd be hard-pressed to find a more faithful woman in Luke's gospel at this point than Mary herself. And the words they're directed to her. And the words they're directed to you and I. I know that a non-believer needs to hear these words. But I also know that A believer needs to hear these words. As a believer, I know that Jesus is my redeemer. I believe that with all my heart. And as a believer, I know that Jesus has atoned for my sins. I believe that with all my heart. But at the same time, I also know times in my life, seasons in my life, where it has been especially hard to believe that Jesus, he is my redeemer. I have felt at times that I don't need a redeemer or that my progress of holiness is such that the kind of redemption that I need from Jesus is a partial redemption. I'm growing at such great gains. I also know what it feels like to live as if I do not need Jesus to atone for my sins, that I can do it on my own. I can stand before God, and the blood of Jesus needs to be poured uh, doubly on others than on me. Why are these words of Simeon hard, uh, hard words, gospel words addressed to Mary herself? 
We know that Jesus is our Redeemer. We know that Jesus has atoned for our sins, but these are sometimes very hard for us to believe as Christians. I've been teaching a class Wednesday evenings about uh, how to uh, listen to sermons, how to make sense of sermons, particularly uh, my own sermons. I think it's important that you would be skillful listeners. And one of the things I said during that class is I try to resist ever finishing a sermon with an illustration. And do you know why? Because oftentimes the, the conversation at lunch is a conversation about the illustration of the pastor rather than the holy word of God. But I'm going to do it anyhow because this is helpful to us. I received an email this week uh, in which uh, someone had sent wrong information and then quickly uh, returned and sent uh, corrected information and made just a short little quip by saying, that, uh, the, saying something like the best laid plans of man. And I got exactly what he was saying, that he had planned to send the email in one way, and it didn't come out that way. The date was wrong, and so he had to send another one. But look, uh, such are the plans of man. Uh, And he's quoting uh, a poem by uh, Robert Burns, and I got it immediately. Robert Burns wrote a poem called To a Mouse. And supposedly, it's the, at least the image of the poem is that he pl- he's plowing his field in the uh, cold, hard winter, and uh, he digs up a mouse's nest. You know the poem, right? And so he has a conversation with this mouse, and he apologizes to the mouse. He says, you saw winter coming, and here you built this home, and then crash, my plow comes through and uh, destroys your house, and you have no house, no money, and here's winter. <laughs> what are you going to do? But the man says that the best laid schemes of mice and men often go awry. That's the quote. He says, look, the best laid schemes of mice often go awry. You build a house, it gets dug up, just happens. Sorry. Same is true for men. The best laid uh, plans of men, they also go awry. They leave us uh, nothing, he says, but grief and pain. But he says to the mouse, he says, mouse, you're actually better off than I am because you just live in the present I live in the present and the past and the future. I look backwards and I see that things are dire. I look forward and I cannot see anything at all. I just guess and I fear. The best laid plans of man, they're just like that. It's an endearing poem. A lot of truth in the poem. Our our best laid plans, they sometimes go awry. Not always, but sometimes they do. But Robbie Burns is looking down the road and he says, I just, I guess and I fear. And I would ask you, It's Christmas. Merry Christmas. But is your life a life of guessing and fearing? I just look down the road, I guess, and I fear. I do the best that I can. I make plans, but I I make those plans with wisdom. I understand that that the best laid schemes of mice and men, they oft go astray. But what Simeon is telling Mary and what Simeon is telling the inhabitants of Jerusalem, what Simeon is telling us is that's that's not how God's plans are. The best laid plans of God are the best laid plans of God. They come to fruition. It's Christmas. We look backwards and we celebrate the incarnation of Jesus Christ. It's Christmas. Look forward to the advent of Jesus a second time. Yes, your plans and my plans are very approximate. But Joseph and Mary, they're going to Jerusalem for a reason. They're going to, uh, to be atoned, and they're going to illustrate redemption. And something happened. What happened? Well, the best laid plans of God are the best laid plans of God. And they see, they 
hear. They understand. Jesus, he is the redeeming and atoning grace of God. He is the only redeeming and atoning grace of God. And our life, best laid, not well laid at all, our life is under God's hand. And as Christians, the future is not a blind guess. The future is not a looking forward to nothing but grief and pain. The future belongs to God just as the present and the past. Jesus, he is the redeeming and atoning grace of God. My brothers and sisters, Merry Christmas to you. And would you join me in looking forward to the second coming of our Jesus. He will come again. Because the best laid plans of God are the best laid plans. Would you join me in prayer? Our Father, we thank you for being with us this Christmas season. It is a season that brings distraction. (laughs) Um, It's a season that brings loss of temper. It's a season that brings disappointment. Brings a lot of good stuff too. But Heavenly Father, you are with us. For all eternity, you are with us. And we thank you, Heavenly Father, for the first coming of our Lord and Savior. And we thank you, Heavenly Father, for the second coming of our Lord and Savior. He is your redeeming and atoning power for us. And we thank you in his name. Amen.